The title of the message today is Toxic Traditions. Toxic Traditions. And uh, we're going to look at a toxic tradition in Israel taking place here in John chapter 9. And uh, we're going to see that this idea of toxic traditions has profound implications for us today because there are toxic traditions um, that may be a part of our life that we're unaware of. And so we're going to. Uh, we're going to see that uh, today. So, Lord, give us wisdom in your word as we dig into it. May you be honored and glorified. We ask it together in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. All right. We left off with Jesus healing a blind man. Uh, and it's been a couple of weeks, but we looked at God's work through Jesus, and we looked at God's work uh, through you. Um, and so since it's been a couple of weeks, let me just start in verse 1, chapter 9, verse 1. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who, <coughs> excuse me, was born blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned but that the works of God should be revealed in him. There's a period in our text, but there's no period in the original language, and it colors actually how this is read, because it's not a period there. It's neither this man sinned nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. I must, continue, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And when he had said these things, he spat on the ground, he made clay with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. And he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. And so he went and washed, and he came back seeing. So again, the focus here is two points, God's work through Jesus and God's work through us. Uh, Jesus says there in verses three and four, so that the works of God should be revealed, uh, I must work the works of him who sent me. For Jesus, uh, his work is to proclaim the gospel and to present himself as the Messiah. And the way that he authenticated his message was through miracles, right? Uh, you'll recall John the Baptist uh, in uh, Matthew chapter 11. I'll put the verse on the screen for you. It says that John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all the things that the Messiah was doing. And so he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah that we've been expecting or should we keep looking for someone else? And so here's how Jesus replied to him in that regard. Jesus told them, go back to John, tell him what you've heard and what you've seen. That the blind see, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life and the good news is being preached to the poor. In other words, Jesus was saying, hey, my works are authenticating that I am in fact the Messiah. Now, in similar fashion, Jesus said that our works also authenticate his message. Jesus emphasizes in verse four, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is the day, the night is coming when nobody can work. Now, in the earliest manuscripts, Jesus doesn't use the word I in verse four. He uses the word we. And the idea is that we must work the works of him who sent us. Uh, Jesus told his disciples, by this, all will know that you're my disciples if you have love one for another. 
As well, Jesus said in Matthew's gospel, as he's preaching the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light so shine before men, before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And indeed, that's what Jesus says in verse five. He says, as long as I'm in the world, I'm the light of the world. So there's God's work through Jesus and there's God's work through his followers. But listen, the main idea of John chapter nine is not limited to Jesus healing physical blindness. It's bigger than that. The bigger idea of John chapter nine is that Jesus came to give sight to the spiritually blind. And the idea is that there is a much greater need than the physical things that we face, right? Because walking in spiritual blindness leads to eternal death. And here in John chapter nine, the religious leaders are in that state, right? In their spiritual blindness, what did they do? They established toxic traditions that separated them from God. And, and this is profoundly toxic because they're influencing others with their toxic traditions, right? Now, this is an ongoing problem through the Gospels. Jesus repeatedly referred to the religious leaders as blind guides and as whitewashed tombs. Uh, in Matthew's Gospel, we read that Jesus confronted these religious leaders. He said, why do you by your traditions violate the direct commands of God? He goes on, he says, you cancel the word of God for the sake of your own tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He said, their worship is a farce, for they teach, here it is, man-made ideas as commands from God. Now, a few verses later, we read that the disciples came to him and they said, do you realize that you just offended the Pharisees by what you said, right? And Jesus' response in verse 14 basically is ignore them. He says, they're blind guides leading the blind, and if one blind person guides another, they're both going to fall into a ditch. Here's the deal. This blind man that we read about in John chapter 9 is not the only blind person in our story right? We got to get that. Right now, spiritually speaking, the religious leaders are blind as bats. And their problem is that they have pinned all of their hopes on following religious tradition. We pick it up. In context, verse 7, Jesus said to this blind man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. And therefore, the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, is this not he who sat and begged? And some said, this is he. And others said, oh, he's like him, right? And now this guy says, I am he, <laughs> right? It is me. I really was restored to sight. And therefore, they said to him, how were your eyes opened? And he answered and he said, a man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And so I went and washed and I received sight. Now stop right there and give me your attention. You might not realize it, but verse 11 is a powder keg of controversy. Why? 
Well, in verse 14, when we get there in a second, we're going to see that Jesus did this work on the Sabbath, right? Now, in their tradition, the Jews had taken the laws of the Old Testament, and they then added literally hundreds of man-made rules to the Old Testament laws. And then what they did is they elevated those rules above Scripture. They made them to be at least equal with Scripture, right? So the rules that we have made in our traditions now have the same weight as the Bible, right? This is what they did. And one of the areas that they did this in was this Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath is a day of rest, right? In the beginning, God established the Sabbath as a gift. It's a day to honor the Lord, and it's a day that God designed to bless his people, right? Jesus said that the Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not for people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. But the Jews turned this around, and they made that gift into a burden by the rules that they added. They actually added 39 rules and regulations to it. And so what they did is they add these rules, they elevate them and say, this is as powerful as scripture. And <clears throat> if you violate our rules that we have assembled, we have put together around the Sabbath, then we're going to kill you because that's the penalty that we have imposed for you breaking our man-made rules. So according to this toxic tradition, verse 11 reveals that Jesus violated three of their man-made rules. He made clay, he anointed the man's eyes, <clears throat> and he then encouraged the man to go wash, right? So three violations of their man-made rules and the penalty is death. So what do the people do? They ask, verse 12, where is he? And he says, I don't know. That's kind of unfair to ask a blind guy where he is, right? <clears throat> I mean, he can see now, but he never saw the guy that healed him. Right? He didn't get his sight until he actually went and obeyed him. We could do a whole verse on that about how the healing came as he trusted in the Lord and, and obeyed the Lord. But they ask him, where is he? Right? Well, verse 13 really gives us a clue why they asked, where is he? They brought him who were formerly blind to the Pharisees. Why? Because he just revealed that he broke the Sabbath. Right? So they're like, well, we're going to see what the religious leaders have to say about that. You come with us. <clears throat> now, verse 14 says it was a Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes, right? Scripture wants to call that out. It wants us to pay attention to that. So they bring him, hey, you know, this guy is just part of, you know, Jesus and, and, and he together broke a bunch of rules, you know. And so then the Pharisees, verse 15, also asked him again how he'd received his sight. And he said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and I see. Pretty straightforward, right? Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. And others said, how can a man who's a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them, right? You recall Nicodemus came to see Jesus at night. He was part of the Sanhedrin. And that was really his question. He's like, you know, <laughs> you've got to be a man sent from God because we see all the stuff that you're doing, right? And so there's this division among them. Verse 17, and they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him because he opened your eyes? And this guy said, he's a prophet. 
He has not come to a saving faith in Jesus yet. Spoiler alert, he will by the end of the story. He hasn't come to a saving faith yet, but this is the highest praise that he knows to give. He's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Um, do you see the ridiculousness of this? I mean, this guy has been there for years and years and years. He's a fixture in the community. Everybody knows he's born blind. But now they're like, oh, he's been faking it all this time. You say he was blind, right? How then does he now see? And his parents answered them and they said, we know that this is our son and we know that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know or who opened his eyes, we don't know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. They're passing the buck here, right? Why? Verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue, right? And therefore his parents said, he's of age, ask him. And so they again, they called the man who was blind and they said to him, Give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner, right? And so he answered and he said, whether or not he's a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. Again, we preach a whole message on the, on the implication of that because this guy's power is in his testimony. So often we're worried about sharing, you know, our faith, you know, before people. And really, you just got to tell people what Jesus has done. Look, here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I see. Here's what I do know. I was an alcoholic, and now I've been delivered from that. Here's what I do know. I was a, I was a guy that just cursed all the time and treated my wife and kids bad, and then God got a hold of me, and I got a new marriage, and, and, and God's restoring things in my life, right? <clears throat> Verse 26, and they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? See, they're going for the rules that he broke. And he answered them, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? (laughs) Gotta love this guy, right? Uh, And by the way, the word also says it all. Because what's the implication? Means he wants to. He's like, "Uh, you know what? I was blind, now I see. I'm following this guy right? So he's like, do you also want to become his disciples? How to make friends and influence people right here, right? And they reviled him and they said, you are his disciple, but we are Moses's disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not know where he's from. And the man answered and he said to them, why, this is a marvelous thing that you don't know where he's from. And yet he has opened my eyes. In other words, what he's saying is, look, the fact that you guys don't see him is even a greater miracle than the fact that he opened my eyes and made me see, right? Now, this man continues, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. And since the world began, it's been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Powerful testimony. And they answered him and they said, you were completely born in sins and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. They revile him. They persecute him. And now what happens? They just threw him out of the church. 
They just kicked him out. So Jesus here, he heals this poor guy, and rather than rejoice, they're outraged. And because they were so blinded by their toxic traditions, they refused to see Jesus as the Messiah. They see him as a sinner who violated their man-made system. I want to emphasize this point. Jesus could have healed this guy anytime he wanted to, right? He chose the time. He chose the place. He chose to do it on the Sabbath. And we see seven times in the scriptures, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. He's like, wake up, wake up disciples. Let's go, boys. Time to heal somebody. It's, it's the Sabbath again. Why do you always do it on the Sabbath? Why can't you do it, you know, on Tuesday or Wednesday? You got to pick the Sabbath. Why? He chooses this very public place, this very public occasion, this very controversial time because he's forcing the issue, right? He's challenging their toxic traditions. You know, some people think that Jesus was the most tolerant, loving person who ever lived. He never offended anybody. There was no microaggression. There was no passive aggression. Uh, he was always a safe space, right? <clears throat> and... He's always this sweet and gentle person, right? Carrying a, lie, a lamb, giving the peace sign. Everybody thinks about Jesus like that. Listen, it's simply not true. Jesus offended people, and he still does today. <clears throat> Why? Because sometimes in his love, and that's what we got to get, it, he doesn't offend people just to offend them. He loves them. And what he's doing is he's forcing the issue. He'll do that in your life. He does it in my life, right? He forces the issue in our marriage. He forces the issue with our kids. He forces the issue in some other way in our life. Why? Because <clears throat> he, we have the opportunity to either respond to God and repent or to remain in our sin. Jesus loves you too much to let you remain in your sin, so he's going to force the issue. That's exactly what's happening here. Jesus heals on the Sabbath on purpose to provoke the issue. Let me just say this. This may be that opportunity for you today. Now, it's unlikely that you're going to be provoked by Jesus working on the Sabbath, right? That's just not really a big part of our culture. But I guarantee you that there are other issues that Jesus is going to force the issue in in your life. Here's the application. I want you to ask yourselves, are there any toxic traditions that I'm holding on to? Let me say it this way, and I even put it on the screen. Are there any systems or paradigms that you are operating under that hinder you from seeing Jesus clearly? A paradigm is a standard. It's a perspective. It's a set of ideas. It's a way of looking at something. And let me give you just a few examples of what I'm talking about. Maybe your paradigm is that you see church as more of an event rather than an ascent, right? Some people, church to them is all about the show. It's all about the programs. It's all about the music. It's all about, hey, pastor, scratch me where I itch, right? And so what they do is they come to church and they're more consumer-minded than they are contributor-minded, right? Rather than coming with an attitude to give their praise to God in worship and coming with an attitude to give their hearts to God, for the work that he wants to do through the teaching of his word, they come with the attitude, what's in it for me? I heard a pastor one time, he was talking about somebody came up to him after the service and they said, you know what, I didn't like worship today. And his response to him was, well, that's too bad, it wasn't for you. It wasn't for you. 
It's for the Lord. It's an offering that we give to God our praise, right? And so the idea is sometimes we're more event-minded than we are ascent-minded. We come to church, we are ascending to the hill of the Lord. We are ascending to meet with God. And we are then in that process, we are understanding that there is a sanctifying work that God wants to do in us. That's a $10 Christian word, sanctification. It just means that God wants to build you up. He wants to grow you up. And so that's the attitude, that's the idea of church. Well, sometimes we, our paradigm, our way of seeing things, our operating system is that we need to maintain a good exterior image, right? And so as long as I project the image that I've got it all together, I'm good, right? And that's a toxic tradition because what happens? You don't let anybody in. You really can't be vulnerable. We're called to bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. And part of bearing a burden means that you share your burdens. And and you don't come across like I've got it all together because ain't none of us got it all together, right? And so maybe you've you've bought into this lie and you have a toxic tradition where, hey man, it's all about how I look and I gotta look like I got it all together. Sometimes we have this paradigm that suggests, you know, church and Christianity, it's really more about religion than it is about relationship. It's about a set of rules, do's and don'ts. And you've bought into this lie to, you know, be right with God. You have to do good. You have to try harder. That God only loves you when you're good, right? That is a toxic paradigm. Why? Because Christianity is about a relationship with the living God. And the Bible teaches that God loves you so much that he gave Christ to die for you and me. So critically important. Well, let me talk to you about a current paradigm that I'm seeing in the church. And I want to preface this. I'm your pastor and I love you, okay? And I I may say some things that offend you. And my heart is not to offend you, but I pray you'll listen to me. Because right now, I'm seeing a toxic paradigm in the church, It's a paradigm of nationalistic pride. And this view is the view that America is the great hope of the gospel. Let me tell you, America is not the great hope for the gospel. The gospel is the great hope for America. I've been a pastor for 30 years. I've planted a bunch of churches. I have served on dozens and dozens of church boards. And I will tell you, in all my years, I've never seen such massive division in the church as I'm seeing right now. And one of the toxic ingredients that's driving this is nationalism. Now, note that I didn't say patriotism, I said nationalism. There's an ocean of difference between the two. Patriotism is you love your country. Nationalism is you worship your country. Now, I want to be clear. America is a wonderful country, right? It's a gift from God. I am a direct descendant of a Minuteman. On my father's side, I don't know how many greats you put before this, great, 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 great grandfather, but one of my grandfathers was a Minuteman in in the Continental Army. So I consider myself a patriot. I love my country. And it was recently pointed out to me that a patriot in Greek means of one's father. Certainly, as American patriots, we value the wisdom and courage of our forefathers. There's nothing wrong with that. We value the ideals embodied in the Constitution. There's nothing wrong with that. But I want to go back further than that. 
I don't want to go back 224 years to the birth of our nation or even 2,000 years to the birth of the church. Let's go back many thousands of years ago to the birth of creation, to God our Father in heaven. Understand in the bigger picture that the skirmishes that we are watching right now in our nation, they're part of a greater battle and they're part of a greater kingdom. We have to get that. See, the greater battle began in the garden with Adam and Eve. And it's this battle of the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of darkness. And at the end of the day, the kingdom of God is the only kingdom that matters. I want to say it again. I even put it on the screen for you. America is not the hope for the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the hope for America. And listen, that's why I don't focus on the skirmishes, but I focus on the battle. Somebody recently asked me, why, do you, why don't you talk about politics? And why don't you talk about the election from the pulpit? And I got a lot of reasons for that. Let me tell you the, the primary reason. I have 40 minutes with you guys to shepherd you as your pastor, right? And so I have to triage my time. Triage is a French word. It means to sort. And the idea is that you do the most good for the most number of people. And here's what the Apostle Paul told Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom to preach politics. Be ready. In, wait, wait, it doesn't say that? No, he says preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Here's the deal. What happens here, my job is to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I got verses, Ephesians chapter four, verse 11 and 12. He himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. That's me. For the equipping of the saints, that's my job. And you are the saints, and what's your job? For the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. See, my job is to equip you. Your job is to put feet on your faith right, and live the gospel out missionally, right? When you come to church, I do my job to feed you God's word, right? And then it is your job to put feet on your faith and live out the word of God, right? And so we teach chapter by chapter and we teach verse by verse because that's what God has called me to do. And then what you are to do is you are to take, as you mature as a Christian, then you go and you engage your world. So when you come in the driveway and you come to church, you're coming to be equipped. When you drive out of the driveway, now you're entering your mission field. We talked about Danae and David and their mission field in Italy. Your mission field is Temecula, Murrieta, wherever it is. And, and I'm not saying that we should not be, as Christians, engaged in politics. Certainly, you should be engaged however the Lord would have you. And I believe that Christians should live missionally. We need Christian politicians. We need Christian teachers. We need Christian firefighters. We need Christian police officers. We need Christian military service people. We need Christian educators. We need all of them to live missionally, 
right? That's the idea of, of doing your job. But I want to caution you about how you go and do that. I don't have time for this, but I don't have time not to, really. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. This is so important. I pray you get this. Pastor Darius, maybe I might want to warn the children's ministry. I might be a couple of minutes here. <laughs> Pastor 16, or, uh, uh, Matthew chapter 16. We pick it up in verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now Caesarea Philippi, if you've been to Israel, it's a region where there's a lot of idols set up to a lot of different gods, little g-gods, right? And so Jesus comes into this region with his disciples. And there's all of these, if you go there today, they've got all of these carvings in the rock where the people would place the little idols of the God that they worshiped. And, uh, and then there was one big area, it was actually known as the gates of, of Hades, or the gates of hell. And it's still there today, right? This big pit. And so against this backdrop, Jesus comes to this region and he asks his disciples saying, who do men say that I, the son of man is? And so they said, <clears throat> well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But he said to them, who do you say that I am? Now, Simon Peter steps up famously, right? He says, you're the Christ, you're the son of the living God. Keep that in mind. Jesus answers, he said to him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, there are those that believe, the Catholic church is predicated on this, that when Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, that he was talking about building his church on Peter. Why? Because when he says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, that's his given name, right? For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven, right? And I also say to you that you are Peter. Peter means little rock. And so that's why some churches believe that Jesus was saying here, hey, Peter, you, you, I'm going to build my church on you. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying here is that I'm going to build my rock on what? On his profession in verse 16, that you are the Christ, that you're the son of the living God. That is what Jesus Christ's church is built on, the profession that Jesus Christ is Lord, right? And he says, so I'm going to build my church on this rock, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now skip down to verse 21. It says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised the third day. Alarm bells, warning, danger, Will Robinson, right? This is, this is you know, those of you that are older get it, all right? Peter ain't having it. Look at verse 22. Peter took him aside and he began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Why? Because the expectation <coughs> was that Jesus was coming to set up rule and reign. And right at this moment, Rome had occupied Jerusalem and all of Israel and every single Jewish person desired that they would be kicked out and that their rule and reign would be reestablished. And Jesus is saying, that's not how it's going to go down. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be crucified. And Peter says, 
No, it's not going to happen that way. You are going to win this election, and you are going to be the one that sets up the rule and reign. Notice Jesus' response. Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. Now, he was just saying, bless are you, Peter. You got it right. I am the Christ, the Son of the living God. But listen, it's not going down the way you think. Get behind me, Satan. You're, not, you're an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. What are the things of men? Hey, you are going to come and you're going to set up rule and reign and you're going to kick out Rome and we're going to rule with you and I'm getting a corner office and I'm interviewing staff right now. I'm picking out furniture for my office to rule with you as you do it the way I think you ought to do it. And then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me for whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Jesus is saying, this is bigger than the government of Israel. <clears throat> this is about heaven and hell. That's what Jesus is saying here. So critically important. Patricia Heaton, who uh, is an actress, uh, she, you might know her from Everybody Loves Raymond. Um, she's one of the few actors in Hollywood that says something I think is worth repeating. She said, if you're, it, she just tweeted this just the other day. She said, if you're a common sense person, you probably don't feel that you have a home in this world right now. If you're a Christian, you know you were never meant to. The Apostle Paul told Timothy, endure suffering along with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Soldiers don't get tied up in the affairs of civilian life for they cannot please the officer who enlisted them. And how does he start this? He says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Jesus Christ. And the things you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who'll be able to teach others also. What are the things that he's to commit? The gospel. The gospel, that's what he's talking about. I'm going to skip a bunch of my notes here, guys, for those of you that are trying to put stuff on the screen. Philippians 3, 17 through 20. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have for us a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things for, hear this, our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, back here in John chapter 9, the Pharisees are having none of this. Their toxic traditions rule the day. And so they reject Jesus, and they kick this man out of the church. And we pick it up in verse 35. Jesus heard that they'd cast him out. And when he had found him, stop right there, that's my favorite part of this whole story when he found him. Remember back in verse one, it wasn't that long ago when we read this, Jesus saw the man, 
right? We, we, we looked at that. We saw that the word saw means literally to see with the eyes, to see with the mind, to perceive, to know, to take heed of. And Jesus not only saw him, now he goes looking for him. And so when he had found him, he said to him, do you believe in the son of God? And he answered and he said, who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have both seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. And then he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The toxic tradition was going to lead this man straight to hell. But he has now forsaken that toxic tradition, and he's found the Lord Jesus Christ. And he worshiped him. And Jesus said, for judgment I've come into this world, that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. And then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words, and they said to him, are we blind also? <laughs> right? X marks the spot, baby. Are we blind also? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, we see. And therefore, your sin remains. Charles Spurgeon said, we cannot give men eyes, but we can give them light. And the story ends with the blind men receiving both. He was given eyes, and he was given sight. Lord, I believe. I'm going to worship you. But not these Pharisees. What, what are you saying? We're blind? Are we blind also? Jesus says, if you were blind, you'd have no sin, but now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. In other words, what Jesus is saying here <coughs> is that because you're not going to admit to your spiritual blindness, you're not going to be able to be forgiven and set free. You're walking in darkness. And there's no hope for you. Here's the truth as we close. We are all born blind. Every last one of us, we're born blind. And Jesus has come to give us sight. Today, I'm going to pray in just a second. And as I pray for you, I want to challenge you with two things. Number one, have you received your sight spiritually speaking? Is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God? If you were to die today, you know we're going to, you're going to spend eternity. So you don't have to wonder. The Bible says that if we repent and confess our sins and give Jesus the invitation to come into our lives that we will be forgiven. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'm gonna give you that opportunity today as we close in prayer. The second application is, if you've done that, <clears throat> I wanna challenge you. Do you have toxic traditions right now that you're holding to that would cause Jesus to say to you, get behind me, Satan. You're not being mindful of the things of God. You're being mindful of the things of men. Three questions as we close, and I'm going to pray. We'll be done. Number one, are there any paradigms that I'm operating under that hinder me from seeing Jesus clearly? Question number two, what tempts me to focus more on my earthly citizenship than on my heavenly citizenship? Question number three, what keeps me from seeing the difficult things that God wants me to see?